On December 4th, 1977, in Bangui, the capital of Central uh, African Empire, uh, the world watched the coronation of His Imperial Majesty Bokassa I. The price tag for the event was $25 million. At 10 a.m., trumpets sounded and drums rolled to announce the approach of His Majesty's procession, which began with eight of Bokassa's 29 children parading down the royal carpet to their seats, followed by Bokassa II, heir to the throne, who would take his seat on the red pillow to the left of the throne, followed by Catherine, the favorite of Bokassa's nine wives. She was wearing a $73,000 gown designed by a French designer in Paris, strewn with uh, pearls that she had handpicked herself. Then the emperor arrived in his imperial coach, adorned with golden eagles and drawn by uh, six Anglo-Norman horses. A marine band played uh, an entry tune that they had especially written for this occasion and for this emperor. And as they played, the emperor strode forth wearing his 32-pound robe, decorated with 785,000 pearls and gold embroidery. White gloves adorned his hands, pearl slippers his feet. On his brow was a golden uh, crown of laurel wreaths, um, like those worn by the the Roman emperors of old, a a symbol of of favor with the gods. And as the song concluded, Bocasa seated himself on his $2.5 million throne, replaced his laurel wreath with a crown that was worth more than $2 million, which was topped with an 80-carat diamond. By 1043... On December the 4th, 1977, the 20th century had witnessed a new emperor. He was a terrible emperor, though, and thankfully only for a short time. Two years after his coronation, while Bacasa was out of the country, the French engineered a successful coup and overthrew uh, the emperor, though too late for many of his victims. Among them were 200 children who were executed because they complained about the expense of school uniforms. Bokassa did his best to establish an enduring kingdom, but he was infamously a failure. He tried to enforce peace under his rule, but the results were the exact opposite. And so it is with rulers of this earth, with kings of this earth, even with good rulers. Try as they may, kingdoms fall, rulers die, death eventually comes, and they lose their empire, their dynasty to someone else. They leave it all behind. But today is Palm Sunday, and we as Christians, hopefully throughout the year, as, as, as worshipers of Jesus, we celebrate, we rejoice, because we know the King of Kings. And Jesus is a new kind of king, a different kind of ruler that would come to bring true and lasting peace. Now, peace is tricky, right? We know this to be the case, even from our own experience. We think about our world and our own lives. Peace is tricky, One author said, uh, few things are more fragile than peace. You can break windows with a stone, but you can break peace with as little as a look or a word. It's true. Our world is affected by a lack of peace. There there are places in this world that today you could go to, to RDU and load up on an airplane and fly to in this world today and get off of that airplane and go and speak to anyone in that nation, no matter how young or old, anyone in that nation, and they could not remember a time when their nation had peace. On a closer level, I think we all know that there's a lack of peace in our own lives, perhaps even in our own families, 
marriages that are filled with strife, parents and children that are at odds, maybe even estranged from one another because of a lack of peace. I think if we were really honest, we could admit that at some point in our lives, maybe even this morning, we know what it feels like to have a lack of peace even in ourself. No one else is involved. Just within our own hearts, we understand what it's like to at times be unsettled or uncertain or conflicted. That one moment we're happy and we seem filled with joy and the next moment we're sad and the next moment we're angry and we can't put a finger on any of those emotions. We can't figure out where they're coming from. We just simply know that we need peace within ourselves, with our neighbors. So this morning, do you have peace? Not like as a congregation, but do you have peace? Do you understand what peace is? Do you, do you know where to get it? Would you know where to find peace and how to keep it? Would you recognize peace if it were offered to you this morning? Would you know what to do with it if you had it? The text before us this morning shows us this kind of peace. A peace that the world cannot give us, nor can the world take away from us. That's an incredible statement. That the world cannot give us true and lasting peace, but it also can't rob you of it if you have it. Luke chapter 19 We'll be in uh, verses 28 through 48. So if you want to open up to Luke chapter 19, as you turn, I'll give you a little bit of, of backstory, right? Because we've not been studying the book of Luke. So I don't want you to be kind of lost in the narrative this morning. Luke chapter 19, verse 28 starts, and when he had said these things, well, you need to know who he is and you need to know what he said. And so uh, he is Jesus. And what we see is that before this passage this morning, uh, Jesus is at, at the end of a, a long journey. Uh, some, some nine months he's been traveling, he's been purposefully zigzagging across Galilee and then Samaria and then Perea and then Judea. And uh, in his ministry, he's, he's been traveling around and, and has done ministry in at least 35 locations in these nine months. And he's timed his journey to end in Jerusalem at precisely the right time for Passover. Now, it's Passover, and Jesus is in Bethany, right on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and expectations are through the roof for Jesus. He's just raised Lazarus from the dead, and news of that has spread, and he's, he's gathered sort of an entourage of people that are following him, wanting to hear him teach. They've, they've witnessed miracles, or they've at least heard about them, and they're wanting to see them for, him, for themselves. And, uh, and, and, and then on top of that, Mary, one of his followers, has just dramatically anointed Jesus's, uh, Jesus with a, uh, oil from an alabaster flask, alabaster flask. Uh, a costly, very costly ointment. And Jesus, with her doing this, defends this extravagance by saying that, that she's anointing him for burial. Now, that's a strange statement from someone who's alive. Um, many of the religious leaders at this point are conspiring together. They're, they're counseling with, among themselves how they might kill Jesus because they've recognized, as the scriptures tell us, that many have started to follow him. And they don't like it, so how do we get, a, get, get, get rid of this guy? There's unprecedented national tension in the holy city about this guy Jesus. And they're all wondering, will Jesus finally make his move, right? They've witnessed that he has an authority to teach and to do miracles unlike anything that they had seen from their religious leaders. And so is this the point where he moves to the holy city, the pinnacle of religion in their day, and he overthrows the religious authority? Is that what he's moving to Jerusalem to do? And if so, when will he do it, and what will they do in response? How will they retaliate? All of that in the background of what we read this morning. Let's start together in verse 28. 
Hear the word of the Lord. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. And so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was near, uh, drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, then the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple. And he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his very words. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We come before you this morning as your people admitting that we need to hear from you. And I come before you this morning admitting that I need your help in proclaiming this your word to these your people. God, would your word find fertile and ready soil in our hearts this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Sermon in a nutshell, if we were able to boil this text down to one sentence, here it is. That Jesus is the true king that came to bring us real and lasting peace. Jesus is the true king that came to bring us real and lasting peace. So we see that in a few different ways this morning. First, we see in the text that peace has a name and it's Jesus. Peace has a name and his name is Jesus. From as early as Luke chapter 9. So we haven't been studying the book of Luke, but if you were to go back to Luke chapter 9... What you would see is that from chapter 9, verse 44, Jesus has been predicting his own death, that he would die. Though he'd been doing all these miracles, he was was constantly telling the people that he was going to die. And then you get to chapter 9, verse 51, and the text says this in Luke. When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey toward Jerusalem. So from that verse in Luke 9, 51, uh, everything in Luke's gospel has been moving and building to this point in chapter 19, verse 28, where we started. Where after he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. 
Now finally the Lord has arrived in the holy city, the city of Jerusalem, and it's here in Jerusalem that Luke, and he, as he's writing his gospel account, as he's writing his eyewitness account of, of these events, he reveals to us as readers that Jesus is the king, the one who brings true and lasting peace. And Luke tips us off to this in three intentional ways, right? So I've already told you Jesus is the one who brings true and lasting peace. Here's how Luke shows us that. One, he gives us a place of peace. Shows us the place of peace. Two, he gives us a picture of peace. And then three, he gives us praise for peace. All of those found in the text that you just heard read to you. So first, a place of peace. Luke gives us a hint of this theme that, that, that Jesus is coming for this purpose uh, by giving us the name of the city itself, Jerusalem. Now, sometimes cities have nicknames for themselves. And I bet you know some, even if you don't think you do, Right? That This is that crowd participation part in the sermon where you kind of feedback and, and answer some questions for me. So uh, I'm going to give you a city, and you tell me what you think its nickname is, right? We'll start with an easy one. Uh, Philadelphia is the city of... Fantastic, church. Um, Pittsburgh and Birmingham fight over this nickname known as the... Steel City. Yeah. Uh, Detroit? Motor City. Here's an easy, there's a softball. I thought we'd end with an easy one, you know, so end on a good note. Uh, Raleigh is the city of, oh, that was surprising. Do you not know your own city? Uh, the city of Oaks, yeah. Well, Jerusalem had a nickname too, and it literally meant the foundation of peace. And so there's Luke's first hint from the very beginning. Of this. From Luke chapter 9, we've been moving this direction all the way to chapter 19. We get to verse 28. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, the city that has its foundation, its peace. There's a city of peace. There's also a picture of peace that we get. The Lord's kingship here is, is visible to us in a second way in the text. Verses 29 through 35 is this strange interaction that involves a donkey. Jesus tells a couple of his, of his followers, of his disciples, hey, go into this nearby village. When you get there, you're going to find a never-ridden colt. What I want you to do is to take that colt and bring him to me. And if anyone asks you, hey, why are you, why are you untying this colt? You're going to answer them specifically, the Lord needs it. And so they do that, and now that's a really strange thing, right? That's a really strange command and process, unless you realize that a prophet had predicted that this whole scenario would unfold hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born in Bethlehem. Right? You heard it read for us this morning, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. The prophet Zechariah, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, said, Greatly rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Zechariah predicted that the true king, the Messiah, the one who would come to bring true and lasting peace, would come to Jerusalem on, an, on a young, unused colt. Now you may be wondering, Matt, what in the world does that have to do with anything? What's the connection here? What, what does it have to do with peace? Well, first, don't miss that prophecy is being fulfilled before your very eyes as you read the book of Luke. Like if you need a reason to believe that Jesus is who he said he was or that the Bible is true and it can be trusted, read the prophet Zechariah and see in Christ hundreds of years later, it happened exactly like he said it would in the life of Jesus. It's not accident or chance that it played out the way it did. But more in this day and age, and they would have understood this much, much more maybe than we would, in this day and age when a king came to another city in times of war, 
He came in on a mighty war horse, a, a, a huge uh, battle stallion, uh, as a picture of the fact that he was about to wreck this city, or he had just wrecked it, and he wanted to, to demonstrate his dominance over it. But when a king came in on a donkey, it meant quite something quite different. It meant he was coming in peace. He had no intentions of destroying the city, or that he had just destroyed the city. He was there on peaceful terms. Perhaps this is why the, the people, the owners of the donkey, sent, uh, simply let Jesus' disciples take it. Um, it's a really strange scene if you think about it, though. If you try to disconnect, all of us have maybe heard this story countless times, but if you try to disconnect your familiarity with the story and just think about what it would have been like to have been a disciple there in that day, watching this whole thing unfold, and the, the disciples listen to Jesus, they obey him, and they go into this village and, look! Just like he said, it's tied up right there. There's the donkey. It's, it's unridden. It's a brand new donkey, just like Jesus said it would be. As far as we know, we're not told that the disciples uh, know the cult's owner. They're strangers, as far as we know. But can you imagine that scene unfold? They're like, here's the donkey. We'll go untie it. So You go untie it. So they're untying the donkey, and the, the owner walks out on the front porch, and he's like, uh, hey, what's going on, bro? You're just going to steal my donkey like that? Is that, is that how it is? You're going to take my colt? And they're like, well, the Lord needs it. Oh, well, if the Lord needs it, by all means, go ahead. Right? Like, like, where does that happen? Right? That, that's not how we think about things. Perhaps it's a possibility that the owners of the, the colt were expecting this. Maybe they were believers in Yahweh and they had read the prophet Zechariah and they knew that one day he would come and he would be needing a colt. And so, hey, as long as we live here, we're going to have a colt ready in case it's us that's involved. In... We don't know. But what we do see is that Luke is intentionally giving us two clues to Jesus' kingship of peace. A place that he was heading, the city of peace, a foundation of peace, and a picture of peace. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a, a beast of peace. A donkey. Third, though, is praise for peace. And this is the clearest. If Zechariah's prophecy and Jesus riding into town on a donkey were too subtle for us to catch, then, then the rest of Luke's narrative here should be resoundingly clear. In verse 37, you see a parade begin to form and, and praise breaks out in the name of peace, right? You, you see the crowds. They seem to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy. The other part of Zechariah's prophecy. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. They're doing that. If you read Matthew's account of this, Matthew 21, it says that they're, they're proclaiming Hosanna. Shouting to the Lord, Hosanna. They lay their cloaks down before the Lord as, as sort of a, a makeshift royal carpet. They've witnessed Jesus do incredible things. Incredible miracles, and this serves to amplify their praise. They're singing his praises. And even if we missed it, even if we could read through this text and miss it, they discern, they understand that Jesus is coming to do something that has something to do with peace, right? They get that. Uh, and verse 38 is evidence that they get it. You see what they, they sing as, as they're praising the Lord in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, when you hear those words, they should bring your mind to something else that happens in the Gospel of Luke. When you hear that, that language, it should bring you back to Luke chapter 2, right? When our Savior's birth took place, remember what happened there. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, uh, angels come and they appear to shepherds uh, watching over their flocks in the field, right? And you remember what those angels say. They say, glory to God, Luke chapter 2, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to the people he favors, now, here's what's really cool about this text as I was studying this this week. 
When Jesus goes anywhere, he brings peace. I mean, watch this. When he was born, Luke chapter 2, when he came to the earth, angels show up and they pronounce peace on earth. Here in this text, he's about to die, be crucified, and go back to heaven. And the people are proclaiming peace in heaven. So wherever Jesus is going, he's bringing with him peace. He's our king of peace that's entering the city of peace on a burden of peace as the people shout peace. That's what he's here to do. He's to usher in true and lasting peace to mankind. What does that mean for you and for me? Do you know where to find peace with God? We find it in the Son of God, in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. He himself, that's Jesus, is our peace. We'll not find peace with God, peace with neighbors, peace within our own lives until we understand that Jesus is our peace. What is this peace? You may think, well, Matt, that sounds really churchy, and that sounds like a really great idea, that Jesus is our peace. That sounds really good, but what does that look like in my life? What does that look like boots on the ground in Bunn, North Carolina, at my work tomorrow? What does that look like? Well, it's a wholeness. It's a wellness. It's a it's a. It's a peace that gives us an assurance that no matter what circumstances come into my life or what's going on in the rest of the world, there's a stillness and a quiet confidence that I am going to be okay. Regardless of what's going on around me, regardless of circumstances in my life, regardless of how dark days get, I know, I can be assured that I am okay because I am in Christ. That's what it looks like. That's what it means for Christ to be our peace. When Christ comes to us, he gives us that kind of peace. Those sinners we still are, and the rebels to his peace we've been, he comes to bring us back to God and to have peace with God. And when that happens, and only when that happens, is it possible for us to have peace, peace with one another, peace with our neighbors, peace with our family, peace with the people that we come into contact with. And I'm not saying that you can't have moments or glimpses of peace unless you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Certainly, we're created in the image of God and we see moments, glimpses of peace in the world from time to time. I'm talking about this kind of peace. True and lasting peace is possible only through Christ. Well, how do we know we're there? How do we know we have it? How do we know? You know you have it. When you, one, know Jesus, you've experienced his mighty works. When you've experienced peace in him, you can't help but to praise him. You see this in the text, right? This is an indication that you have it. Look at the text. Look what it says. If you continue, verse 38, the crowds are praising Jesus. They're shouting Hosanna. They're saying peace on earth, peace in heaven, and and, and laying down their robes before him. Then verse 39, the religious leaders don't like it, right? The religious leaders, they've been plotting to try to kill Jesus. They see what's going on, and they come up to him and say, uh, it says in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Do you see what they're doing? They're worshiping you. They're they're treating you as if you're God. They're worshiping you and saying, Glory to God. They're, They're talking about you as if you're God. They're praising you. That's blasphemous, Jesus. Stop your disciples from doing this. See, they didn't want to see Jesus praised as king. They didn't want to see Jesus associated with the glory of God. They wanted it to end. And Jesus' response to them is one of those famous sayings of Jesus. Verse 40, he answered, I tell you, if they were silent, if they were stopped, the very stones themselves would cry out. The very rocks would begin to praise me. Why? Because I will be praised. That's what Jesus is saying. 
whether by people or inanimate objects, I will be praised. If people stop, if these people stop praising me, rocks will do it for them. And not just rocks, but if, 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 they, if they stop praising me, the trees will clap for my glory, Isaiah 55. And not just the trees, but the mountains themselves will sing and dance, Psalm 114. And not just mountains, but the sky itself will praise me, Psalm 19. And not just the sky, but everything that has breath will praise me, Psalm 150. So you don't understand. I'm worthy of praise. And so if people stop doing it, the objects in creation will. Stones will. This is a takeaway for you, friend. If you've found true peace, you know it because of the praise coming from your life, the praise coming from your mouth and lips. Don't let anyone take that away. Don't let anyone stop you from praising Jesus. He's worthy of it. Express your praise to Jesus in, in, in all of your life, right? If, if, if you want to shout amen, then you shout amen. If, if, you want to, if you want to stand and lift hands unto the Lord, you lift hands to the Lord. If you want to bow on your knees in reverence to him, friend, get on your face before the Lord. Let what God's doing in your life, the peace that he's given you, result in praise to him. If Jesus brings you peace, bring him praise. That's an evidence of this kind of peace. Now, I don't know about you. I don't want a rock taking my place. I'm kind of jealous for that. I don't, know, I don't want a rock doing my job. Number two. Second thing we learn about peace here is not only does peace have a name, his name is Jesus, we see that peace can pass us by. Peace can pass us by. Uh, Jesus headed down the Mount of Olives. He's headed into uh, Jerusalem. And in, in verse 41, amidst all this celebration and praise, amidst all the prophecy being fulfilled, he does something really unexpected. Verse 41, he is finally able to get a glimpse of the holy city. And he weeps. His heart's broken. He cries. And this teaches us something, doesn't it, church? It teaches us that you can have peace, true and full and lasting peace, in yourself and still weep over your community around you. And certainly Jesus knew peace. He, he is peace. He is an embodiment. He's the fullness of God. He has perfect relationship with the Father. He knew exactly what peace was, and yet he still weeps at the sight and thought of his city and its people. And the brokenness there. Thabiti Anyabwile, that's a doozy of a name, says this about this text. It says, perhaps there's something wrong with someone who claims to have the peace of Christ, but never seem to have the tears of Christ. That person may not actually have peace, but instead indifference or half-heartedness. The Lord looks at a city that he loves and his heart just breaks. It melts before him. Perhaps you've never thought about that, or maybe not thought deeply about that before, but the infinite, eternal God of the universe cries. Let that weigh heavy on you this morning, that when Jesus sees brokenness and sin and a people that don't see who he is, it makes him weep. The Son of God, with all power and glory and authority, looks at a sinful city and instead of sending thunder and wrath of, of lightning strikes and, and divine curses like an earthquake opening up and swallowing this city, he looks at this sinful city and all of its inhabitants and tears begin to flow. Tears begin to flow down his cheeks, the very same cheeks where blood would flow in just a few short days. And he weeps for the city for this city, for every village, for every community that will ever exist where peace has passed by. Why? Because he comes to bring them peace and they missed it. Out of unbelief, out of just simply busyness with life, 
not counting it a priority, peace passed them by. You see it in what he says. Look at verse 42. Jesus now speaking to Jerusalem, speaking to an image of the city. He says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. Peace passed them by because they didn't know what would bring them peace. And he wishes that they would see it. And even today, our community, if you think about our context, think about our world, our community is full of people who are looking for something that will bring them peace, right? Desperate for anything that will bring them relief and comfort and peace. Medicating themselves with drugs or alcohol. Calming uh, their, their fears and anxieties with sex or relationships or money or power. Or anything that will for a moment give some semblance of peace. False religions or cults. Anything that will give them peace. When if you were to go and ask any one of those categories of people in a moment of honesty. What are you after? It's peace. And here we find that there's no substitute For peace, there's nothing that will fill or last like Christ himself. But the good news is Jesus came to give that kind of peace, and he weeps because Jerusalem missed it. A city that he loved, his own people missed it. He also weeps because they didn't know that God himself was there with them. Look at verse 43 and 44. For the days will come upon you, he's still speaking to Jerusalem, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, and they will surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Here's the second prophecy we see fulfilled in this text. Everything that Jesus predicted in that, those two verses came to pass, and not very long after he said it. And so first he tells them, go, in the, go to this village, you're going to find a donkey. They go, and they did. Here Jesus says, in a short time, Jerusalem, you're going to be sacked. Everything here is going to be destroyed and turned to rubble. And in AD 70, we learn from history that the Romans did indeed sack Jerusalem. The temple that they revered, that they adored, that they thought was unconquerable, was destroyed. It was torn down so that not one stone was upon the other. Nothing was left standing. It was demolished. And as terrible as that scene was... As terrible as that physical ruin was, Jesus says there's something far worse. He says that all of this happened because you didn't know the time of your visitation. Effectively, what Jesus is saying is, all of this could have been avoided if you would have just known who I am and why I came to visit you. If you'd have bowed your knee to me. Have you ever thought about how many of our problems in our lives, maybe even problems that you'll face tomorrow, how many problems in our lives are from a failure to recognize God's presence with you? Do you realize that? Let me explain. Jesus has fulfilled God's law by sacrificing himself on the cross. His death that we're going to celebrate this week in in Easter, his death on the cross, his resurrection, makes peace possible. Peace between men, peace within, and, and ultimately peace with God. His death accomplishes that. And so by faith, we have reconciliation with God. We trust Jesus, your death on the cross is what accomplished my forgiveness. I don't have to work for it. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to do anything to meet God's approval because you've accomplished that. Do you hear the peace in that? That he's already done this. He's accomplished this for us. In that peace, you can rest. You can stop trying to live for the approval of men and and please man. Why? Because you've been accepted by God's son. You've been accepted in his place. Do you hear the peace in that? We don't worry about God's acceptance because Christ is our righteousness. We don't worry about God's justice and wrath and judgment because Christ has been condemned for us. And friends, when we have those sort of problems, our biggest problem, sorted out and accomplished in the cross of Calvary, then friends, we can live at peace with our neighbors, with one another, with our family members. Because we ultimately know that that is final. 
There's complete peace in that. And Jesus weeps because his own kinsmen missed it. Peace passed them by. Here's the reality too. Weeps for you. He weeps for you that that in this moment you can be hearing the word of God. It can be passing right by you this very moment. The tears of Christ here in this text measure the value of your soul. That he weeps at the thought of grace passing by you. So don't be the source of his tears today. Cherish the gospel. Cherish that Christ died in your place. And that he's here in this moment calling you unto himself by the word of God. Third thing we learn about peace here in this text. Peace is not passive. Peace is not passive. Let me say something very carefully. In one sense, the benefits of knowing true peace, Jesus, cannot be lost, right? So salvation, forgiveness of sins, uh, uh, an eternity in the presence of Jesus, relationship with God, those things can't be lost or squandered. Scripture teaches us nothing nor no one can separate us from the love of Christ. That's secured in Him. If you are in Christ, that is preserved, protected by God himself. But that doesn't mean that peace comes without maintenance. That we can just be completely passive as it relates to peace in this life. In that sense, peace is sort of like grass that needs to be mowed or oil that needs to be changed in a vehicle or gutters that need to be cleaned out or better, a relationship that needs to be given repeated investment. Right? Because most fundamentally, Peace is a relationship with God, a relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. That's how we know peace. Remember, peace has a name. It's Jesus. And we shouldn't be surprised then if, like all relationships, we must give peace with Christ attention, constant attention. So how do we do that? Well, thankfully, God's word continues and gives us the answers to that question as well. Peace is not passive. We must maintain peace as we communicate with God. Let's continue in the text. We maintain peace as we communicate with God. Look at verse 45. And he, Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. So Jesus enters Jerusalem. He enters the holy city. He goes straight to the temple, straight to the heart of worship, heart of religion in their day, and he purges it of sinful behavior clearly states that they had taken a place that was supposed to be about prayer and made it a place of sin, a place where there was robbery taking place. And we learn a lot about Jesus. I learn a lot from Jesus here, right? First, that sinful men have always attempted to make money out of their gods. This is not not something new in our day with televangelists and those sorts of things trying to sell you a, a prayer cloth or something. This has been happening for ages, that people try to peddle their religion for a profit. Second, we see that, uh, that, people, that, that, that people are not true worshipers of God. They're, they're false worshipers of God here in the, Old, I mean, in the New Testament as well as in our day. And in Jesus' day, what's going on here is they're setting up right outside the temple and they're selling animals and things that would be needed to offer offerings to God. And that in itself is not a bad thing. That's not sin, right? You go back to Deuteronomy, our study through the Old Testament in, in Deuteronomy, you see that God made an allowance for this, right? So that travelers coming from far away to the temple in Jerusalem didn't have to travel with all of their sacrifices, all their animals. They could get to Jerusalem and purchase them there, make their offerings before the Lord. But, so that's not wrong, that's not sinful in itself, that the fact that they're selling things. But like all good things, they had turned something that was good into sin because they were trying to profit off of it. They got greedy. They saw that the love of money rose up in their hearts, and they they began to make a profit off this thing that God had allowed for them to be able to do. 
Jesus calls them a den of robbers. Now, sometimes maintaining peace requires confrontation. We see that in the text. And so the Lord, the the one who we just saw weeping over this city, the one we saw with tears streaming down his face over this very same city, the king who is the king of peace, who rode into the city of peace on on a beast of peace, that same Lord braids himself a whip out of leather, and he goes into the temple and he whoops the snot out of these evil, sinful men that are, that are making a mockery out of God in his temple. Now to say that Jesus is the king of peace doesn't mean that we're saying that Jesus is soft. We certainly see that he's not here. That he's angered. That just as he can weep, he can also rise up in holy and righteous anger. Especially when his worship is corrupted. So let's make some application here, church family. Let's ask what this means for us. What, or better whom, does Paul say is the temple of the Holy Spirit now in our day? After Christ has been resurrected, after the temple has been destroyed, after uh, his spirit has come to live inside of us. This is Pastor Michael's sermon from a, a few weeks back. Who is the temple of the Holy Spirit now? It's, it's us. It's you and I. We are the place where his spirit dwells. We are the temple of the Lord. We're the royal priesthood, the Bible says. So we should be a people of prayer. Listen, this is profound, friend. There's no such thing as praying too much, right? Like, like if I were to come up to you next week and say, hey, man, I heard you had a job opportunity. How's that going? Well, I'm just praying, praying too much about it. I'm just praying too much. What? That's how we commune with God. That's what our day should be characterized by, spending time with him in prayer, communicating with God. That's how we cultivate this peace that he's given us. So let me ask you, what robs you of time with God in prayer? Because that very same thing is simultaneously robbing you of peace that he offers you in relationship with him. Is there anything? Anything in your life that's robbing your time and your attention and your focus away from him? This is robbing you of peace. What things are in your life that you should drive out, right? The picture that Christ gives us here in the text. If there are things, do it. Drive them out before Christ braids a whip and cleanses you, his temple. We also maintain peace As we hear from God, continuing the text, look at verse 47. And he, that's Jesus again, was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they could not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Once the Lord's finished here with his business, with the money changers, he's done, he's ran them out of the temple. The text says that he went right back to teaching the people. Some translations say every day he was found teaching in the temple. So let me ask you, how important must the Lord's teaching be if near the end of his life he's spending every day teaching? That's what he's doing. That's how he's spending his time. And we have that teaching in the word of God, in the Bibles that you hold in your hand. So how important must that teaching be for us? Let me ask you a different question. How, in our text, was peace maintained in Jerusalem? Look at verse 47, the verse we just read. Chief priests, the scribes, those religious leaders, they were all seeking to destroy him, but they could not, the text says in verse 48. Why couldn't they? Why could they not destroy him? We'll finish the verse. For all the people were hanging on his words. They literally couldn't break the peace because so many people were listening to the words of Jesus. Let that picture just sink in for you. They're hanging on his very words. They're, 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 they're not being tossed about by the rage, the, the potential violence and, and riot that's about to, about to break loose. They're simply sitting and listening to Jesus. 
They're hearing his word. They're content. They're filled with peace. It's the remedy to to blindness and ignorance and and rage and racism and divisiveness that's about to take place in Jerusalem because they're just simply sitting and hearing Jesus teach. Does that sound like your life? Does that sound like your life that amidst the crazy, amidst the tumultuous world that we live in, you're just simply hearing from God and at peace? You're just listening to the voice of the Lord. You're spending time before him and his word. And because of that, you're unaffected by the stuff around you, the circumstances around you that could potentially toss you into, into turmoil, into conflict, into anxiety, into worry. Does that sound like your life? Think about our world, right? Picture this scene in Jerusalem and the fact that these religious leaders are trying to start a riot. They're trying to start something that would lead to Jesus' death, which eventually it does. But at this moment, they can't do it because there are so many people that are clinging to Jesus' word. What if that was characteristic of our nation? That the news reporters simply didn't have anything to report on because there are too many people listening to the word of God. What a scene that would be. That's the power that God's word has. And I don't want to give you some false sense of hope. God's people can have true and lasting peace. But that doesn't mean that God's people always have peace and quiet. Amen, mamas. (laughs) Doesn't mean that we're always going to have peace and quiet. But it does mean that God's people... Always be able to have peace in the midst of whatever circumstances, trials, storms that come in their life. Circumstances are not always rosy, and you're just like, well, you know, I'm just loving life, soaking in the Word of God. It's just a gorgeous day, and everything's rosy. Think about the scene in the text. In just a few short days, the calm of this moment, the the picture of them just sitting and listening to Jesus' teaching, it's about to be obliterated by the gruesome execution of Jesus. That's That's just a short time away at this point. But... Seasons of rest like this, seasons of joy like this, before the storm, enable us to better survive the suffering because we've had opportunities to store up the word of God, store up the joy that we have in our walk with him, store up the peace that his word and that his promises give us, right? The very Bible that you're reading right now is testimony to that. I mean, think about how we have the word of God. The men that were listening, the disciples that were following Jesus, they're, they're, they're here and they're soaking up the word of God in this, in this calm moment. They're hearing, hearing the voice of the Lord and hearing him teach. But Calvary's coming. That suffering's coming. The, the, the persecution that each one of them would endure is coming. But in those moments, they're able to interpret the horrors of Calvary, literally the execution of God, they're able to interpret through the peace that they have right now as they hear him teach, as they sit and listen to him explain the word of God. And then they record it into a book that you're holding right now. Friends, that's what these moments, if you're in a season right now of peace where you're just like, Everything's okay. Hear the voice of the Lord. Spend time with him in his word because that, that kind of season is not promised to you. And there's coming a day where you'll go through suffering and you're going to need the promises of God. You're going to need the peace of God that he's providing you right now. So let me ask you, how are you doing at being captivated by God's word? At spending time on your face before him in prayer? Are you more focused on the chaos around you? And certainly we live in a tumultuous world. Or are you at peace True and lasting peace in your heart because you've experienced Christ and his suffering on your behalf. Let's pray together.